Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There are two ways of looking at Elizabeth Holmes, who's facing charges of conspiracy and fraud. These two versions of the former CEO of Theranos will play out in her upcoming trial. I'm Amy, here with attorney Ethan Behrman. Law Junkie show does not give legal advice, but this podcast can clear up some of the confusion when it comes to how the law works, and you shouldn't have to go to law school to know this stuff. Elizabeth Holmes, Part 2. Theranos, the failed medtech company, a facade kept on life support by sheer determination, or was it sheer delusion of its founder, Elizabeth Holmes? That's going to be the question when the trial begins later in this month of August 2021, where Elizabeth Holmes will answer to conspiracy and wire fraud charges. It's safe to assume that nobody wants to be convicted of any charges ever, but why is being convicted of fraud worse than being convicted of murder or rape? Well, in there's a term that goes all the way back to Roman law, and it's called crimen falsi. These are specific crimes that are committed that... Um, are dishonest acts, false statements. It's codified specifically into the federal rules of evidence 609. It's very, very different than any other crime. So the reason it's so such a big deal to be convicted of a crimen falsi is because you are essentially in anything in the future that should go to trial it will be used against you in court by law, essentially. So unlike murder, when you get out of prison or if you're pardoned for murdering somebody um, and it's been 10 years since you were convicted, it's not necessarily admissible in court. It's subject to a probative balancing test by the judge. A crimen falsi, unlike any other crime, under Federal Rules of Evidence 609A2, the judge has no discretion. The rules say for crimen falsi that the evidence must be admitted if the court can determine, it says readily determine, that establishing the elements of the crime required proving or the witnesses admitting a dishonest act or false statement. So fraud, wire fraud, or crimen falsi, and that means Elizabeth Holmes in the future would be not automatically impeachable, but nearly. It will be brought up in court and she will be attacked for it and her credibility will be diminished greatly. Meaning a murderer would have more credibility than someone convicted of fraud. 
Yes, especially if it's been more than 10 years since the crime happened. Sunny Balwani will also answer to charges separately. This was her business partner. Why did they sever their case? They're, they were going to be tried together, but one or both of them filed a motion to be tried separately. Why? Well, most likely, I believe it was Elizabeth Holmes' legal team who filed to separate the cases. And that would indicate, most likely, that she intends to blame him, essentially. Say, he is the reason these crimes were committed. I was not the one who did it. It was him who did it. And that could be many different things um, that are involved in that, but it's essentially, I, I'm not going to be, a, we're not doing a joint defense. I'm going to point my finger at him. And this is also where the mental health evaluation comes in? Well, that's actually a, a, a separate defense. Potentially, it could tie into Balwani, but more likely, what the mental health defense will be about is this idea that, um, again, fraud requires you to have the mens rea, the intent to commit the crime to knowingly deceive another um, for pecuniary gain. And in this case, if her mental health defense is going to be she was incapable of either knowing what she was saying was false or incapable of intentionally misleading somebody else, something along those lines would be more likely um, but that is a separate defense. So she's going it, to, it, it would indicate here that she's going to attempt two different defenses. And that's okay. You can do that. You can throw out as many defenses as you want. And whichever one sticks is all that really matters. You just need something to stick. Uh, that one of the elements that the prosecutors are claiming on uh, defense in a criminal trial, I only have to disprove one of those beyond a reasonable doubt. And I can't be convicted then. there ever been a case like this before? Has there ever been a case where someone was let off the hook because they had some psychological condition that they were incapable of understanding that they were conning people? What's, I wonder, what would that be? Have you heard of a case like that? Off the top of my head, I'm not aware of one, but there have been many cases where mental distress, duress, um, different things can come into play to, to either, you know, annul a contract, for example. Like if I'm holding a, a gun to somebody's head and they say, you better sign this contract. Well, that's a type of duress, a, a mental state that is not going to allow me to, to, to um, consciously engage in that contract. But in terms of Deception. getting out of a... Right. Financial crime like this, deception, I'm off the top of my head not aware of one. So will the same judge be presiding over the case? Uh, is it the same judge who unsealed her mental health records recently? So the judge in this case in the Northern District is U.S. District Judge Edward Davila. He is not the one who... So let me step back for a second. Matters of discovery 
are handled by a magistrate judge. It's a different judge than the trial judge. So it would have been the magistrate that approved the sealing of the documents in the docket. And in this case now, it's the district judge, Edward Davila, that said, no, uh, I don't think you need until September to do that, telling them to just redact when they unseal some of these records. Your, I'm quoting the, the judge here. Your firms hire the best and brightest. You have great fluency of what's contained in your pleadings. September 7th, I think that's a little too far away, and the government and I will be involved. So the judge is in charge of the trial, and all of the, the steps essentially leading up to the trial itself. So what gets redacted and what stays typically? Well, there isn't really a typical, but we do know that often, well, we know for, for a fact that things like social security numbers are redacted in court filings. We know that sensitive, maybe bank information, such as account numbers, could get redacted. We know that things like medical record numbers that would uniquely identify and, and give away some privacy would likely be redacted. Um, the other thing that would be redacted is the things that are not relevant to the matter at hand. So let's say I have a, a therapist's record. So let's say Dr. Mechanic has done an evaluation on Elizabeth Holmes and they talked about her mother, her relationship with her mother. And ultimately it has no relevance to whatever her defense is going to be, her mental health defense here, supposedly. That would likely be redacted as well. But those are the things that are normally redacted. And again, trade secrets would be redacted. But we're not talking about trade secrets in this case. So the really key points, the really important relevant points are not going to be redacted. So if you see all that, all the markings, it's not relevant to the case. Yeah, right. Uh, or, or it's or it's truly private information like your social security number. And it's digital now, correct? Not always. So people can do paper when they do discovery and they turn over documents. You can do it by paper. But most, especially bigger law firms nowadays and, and small firms for that matter, there are tools called e-discovery tools, electronic discovery, where I would upload all these documents and it allows me to, you know, put the black box over the social security number, redact and take notations and mark hot documents, meaning those that are most critical to the case at hand um, and organize them. And, and when you when you present um, do evidence for for trial, there is something called a Bates numbering system in the corner of the documents. These e-discovery tools do all of that. As well, they're really, really cool, actually. I mean, as a nerd, I, I love the e-discovery tools and, and the technology that's in use now. When the trial starts, it's really going to come down to two different angles. One angle will be that... Elizabeth Holmes 
believed sincerely in her idea, only needed more time, more money, and just more of everything she was doing to get it off the ground, to make it really happen. And that there was no crime committed. There was no intent to deceive because she truly, truly believed in this invention. And that also she's just doing what everybody else in Silicon Valley was doing, making big promises without knowing exactly how she was going to deliver on these promises. But so many before her had done just exactly the same thing. And the other angle is going to be that she is very calculating, manipulative, shrewd, knows exactly what she's doing, did know exactly what she was doing. She knew that she wasn't able to do what she was saying she was doing. She she knew that she was deceiving. Like you mentioned, she was lying about test results. Some paying attention to this case say that basically 99 out of 100 people in her position would have taken a deal at this point, a plea. She is instead pleading not guilty, going to trial, likely to even testify. It's possible, some are saying, that she may even testify, which we'll definitely cover if that happens. So this is either her saying, I'm so convinced of my innocence, I will risk testifying, I will go to trial, I will, you know, stand in front of a jury, I will have a child. She's going to be a new mom when this trial begins. So it's almost, the the message could be, I am so convinced of my innocence that I will proceed with all of these things with such confidence because I know, I know that I'm completely innocent and I know that you will know that I'm completely innocent by the end of this trial. And another way to look at that is that in a possibly twisted mind, one might be thinking, if I act innocent enough, if I able to convince people, I'll be able to convince people that I'm innocent because I'm pretty good at convincing people that I'm innocent. I've convinced some of the smartest people on the planet to listen to me. So this jury thing, it's possible that this is just another challenge for her. Well, I mean, there's a number of different issues in there. First off, we don't know if there was a plea deal offered by the prosecutors, and we don't, and we won't necessarily know what would have been in that offer. So maybe the plea deal was terrible, right? And so they can reject that on that basis. The other side, though, is I really think what you talked about, which is she believes she can convince anybody of anything. And you know what? Um, narcissistic, sociopath, psychopathic type people, I'm not saying that she is, but that type of personality believes it. And to your point, she's convinced a lot of people to give her a lot of money, very powerful people. And so, yes, there's a whole lot of ego that comes into that. It is not necessarily a recommended course of action. Attorneys 
almost always want you to find a plea deal that, especially if it can be like a misdemeanor instead of a felony, you know, drop the seriousness of the charges. Uh, maybe it's a conspiracy you, you plea to as opposed to the actual wire fraud. We, you know, any of those things to reduce it, that's the normal way. Even more importantly is attorneys, generally speaking, do not want defendants to testify because you, if you take the stand in your own defense, the prosecutor has free reign to go after you in front of the jury. And you have you can't get out of it at that point. When you choose to take the stand in your own defense, the prosecutors go after you. So this is a this is a very interesting strategy that either they really feel good that the facts just simply are on their side, or you know the the ego is at play here, whatever that might look like. Uh, and then the third option just is, and they didn't, or they didn't get a good plea deal, which I don't believe. I would wager that the prosecutors offered something reasonable, and that they just didn't take it and said, "We're going to trial." So let's assume the worst of Elizabeth Holmes for a minute, as some cynics have, and they have looked at her, the timing of the birth of her child, and said. Oh, that how interesting is this timing? Are babies allowed in the courtroom? Would she be able to have um, a nanny or a helper in the courtroom with her baby to take a break to nurse or any such scenario? Well, that would that would be very unusual. Um, but again, judges have their own rules for their courtrooms and they have great discretion to do as they see fit. But anything that would prejudice the jury. So if I'm the prosecutor and know that she's bringing uh, her newborn baby, I would object. And I would you would be having this conversation with the judge away from the jury saying, I don't want that to be allowed. That's going to prejudice the jury. And then that's an argument. And the judge will make that that call and say, yes, it's allowed. No, it's not allowed in my courtroom. Um, I would suggest that the judge would not allow Elizabeth Holmes' newborn baby in the courtroom. That would be disruptive. It would potentially prejudice the jury. And it's not medically necessary. So uh, there are many ways to deal with a newborn child not needing to be in the courtroom with the mother. So this happens all the time in criminal trials of people of lesser means who have Babies and their babies aren't allowed in the courtroom. So, but as we also know, sometimes those with more money to spend on really good attorneys may get things that they want. I, I just really doubt that that'll happen. But there's no specific rule that I'm aware of that that would say no, you can't have your baby in the court, or yes, you can have your baby in the court. Does the same judge who presides over the trial give the sentencing? Yes. So that is the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure, Rule 32. It's uh, 32B1. The court must impose sentence without unnecessary delay, and that is the judge that does that. And he, has, he or she, in this case he, has to do that without unnecessary delay. Do you think he could go easier on her in sentencing because of the baby? Again, there are usually sentencing guidelines. I haven't looked up for wire fraud what the sentencing guideline is. 
However, again, it, uh, unless it's one of those rigid rules like the three strikes rules or the statute specifically lays out, you will, you know, sentence, you must five years to 13 years per whatever. The judge has discretion and judges are human. However, the seriousness and the size and the scope of the allegations in this case, I believe the prosecutors have a strong case to say that she deserves the maximum sentence should she be found guilty. Because this cost, uh, think of all the employees, think of all the investors, think of people's lives that were put in jeopardy by the alleged lies that she was telling about this medical device. I can't imagine, well, although it's possible, I can't imagine that the judge would be swayed by a newborn baby. I, I understand that cynics are going to go there and say, oh, well, I mean, this is all a game on her part to try and garner sympathy. I, I have a hard time seeing that because this is such a serious case that affected so many people financially, their health, um, their jobs, their livelihoods. I mean, just their, their own mental health. This, this is a very, very serious case. How could the outcome affect Silicon Valley if Elizabeth Holmes is found not guilty? Wow. If she is found not guilty, it depends if there's some evidence. Again, it's really going to depend on what comes out at trial, what is admissible at trial. If there really is some compelling evidence that exonerates her, it'll have no effect on Silicon Valley. If it doesn't look that clear cut, and it looks like she somehow got away with this for whatever reason that the jury is just like, ah, we were not convinced. We were not convinced. A absent some really strong evidence in her favor. Then, yeah, the danger here would be like, eh, we can get a slap on the wrist for, for these kinds of offenses that she's accused of here of wire fraud, multiple counts of wire fraud and conspiracy to commit wire fraud. That potentially allows... I don't want to call them bad players, but those who maybe are on the edge to push it even more in, in terms of what they sell to people about what they're capable of doing. And what changes could we expect to find if she is found guilty? Well, I mean, I think it's, it's a warning, right? To, to not go as far as she did of promising and, and not delivering, but not remember, we're not just saying that she didn't that she promised something and didn't deliver. What the allegations here are is she promised something that didn't exist, wasn't actually possible. She was lying about it, and she lied about the capability of the machines that she was selling to companies like the Walgreens, for example, that the machine never actually worked. And they were saying it worked, and it's great, and, you know, I, I think it's just a cautionary tale of if you're going to promise something, you have to have the ability to deliver and if you have no ability to deliver, well, you can't make that promise. Thank you for listening to Law Junkie. Please rate, review, and we love your feedback. Contact us at info at lawjunkieshow.com. Go to lawjunkieshow.com and fill out our contact form. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Law Junkie Show. Disclaimer. 
Law Junkie's show, including its guests and hosts, are not giving out legal advice, but discussing general legal issues. Law Junkie show does not guarantee that the legal issues discussed are fully accurate, and it's not specific to whatever legal issues you may be experiencing. None of this advice is to be acted upon in your situation. Please seek legal advice from a licensed attorney in your jurisdiction for your individual legal matter.